Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you to everyone for coming. It's great to be back uh, physically in person, um, finally. Um, Welcome to this evening's program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm pleased to be here on stage in the beautiful headquarters. This is a place I like to call a temple to ideas. Um, To welcome both our in-person and online audiences for tonight's program, My name is Ken Broad. I'm a founding member of Jackson Square Partners, an investment firm located right here in uh, San Francisco. I'm a longtime and proud supporter of the Commonwealth Club and particularly pleased uh, the club has partnered with the University of Southern California and the Dornsife Center for the Political Future to promote this particular program. So a big shout out to those tuning in remotely from L.A. Um, As a longtime fan of the Commonwealth Club and advocate for its civic mission uh, to convene the community on important issues, I am delighted the club has returned to hosting in-person public programs uh, on a regular basis. So I encourage you all to check out the programming and learn more about upcoming offerings at www.commonwealthclub.org. And it's literally every week there's stuff that you'd want to come to. And my wife reminds me, we still have kids, you know that, right, at home. Um, Tonight's featured speaker is political scientist uh, Francis Fukuyama. Dr. Fukuyama is the Olivier Nomeli, Nomellini, excuse me, senior fellow at Stanford University's uh, Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and a faculty member at the FSI Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. He is uh, also director of Stanford's Ford Dorsey Masters in International Policy. Uh, Dr. Fukuyama has written widely on issues in development and international politics, and he joins us tonight to talk about his new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, which builds on his prior book on identity. Um, There's broad consensus that liberal democracy is under attack or in retreat in many parts of the world. It is being contested not just by authoritarian states like China and Russia, but also by populists who have been elected in many democracies that seemed secure. Why is this happening? What has the combination of unbridled neoliberalism, identitarian politics, and social media wrought? And how do we return to the classical form of liberalism? Dr. Fukuyama is one of the most recognized thinkers on the long historical arc of liberalism and democracy, and he will share his critique of liberalism in conversation with political consultant and writer Tim Miller. Tim is a writer at Bulwark, I know we are in for a truly fantastic and supremely relevant conversation this evening. Um, One final note before welcoming the speakers to the stage, we will be taking your questions for Dr. Fukuyama tonight. If you're here on site, please write your questions on a card and it will be brought up to the stage. And if you're watching online, please put your questions in the YouTube chat box and those questions will be forwarded to Tim. So with that, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Francis Fukuyama and Tim Miller to the stage. Thanks to Ken uh, for his support of this conversation. Uh, my name is Tim Miller. I'm a writer for The Bulwark, uh, as Ken mentioned. I also have a book coming out, Why We Did It, about why people who knew better went along with Trump. It's pre-order now, just saying. Um, I don't know that it's up to the level of the book that we're going to be speaking about tonight, but I think you'll enjoy it. Um, I am so excited and honored 
to be able to moderate this conversation with Frank, who I've uh, long admired. And um, I, I, was, I appreciated the opportunity to read this book to kind of refresh my memory about some of the political science and political philosophy classes that I may or may not have skipped uh, while I was at George Washington University. And so I, I feel uh, very prepared for this. It's extremely timely, and uh, I'm excited to be here with you. Well, great to be here. I just wanted to point out I'm wearing a Ukrainian baseball cap with the Ukrainian trident. I'm now going to take it off, although I realize that it's actually quite helpful in shielding me from those bright lights. But just in politeness to the Commonwealth Club, I'm... And I had just purchased a Slava Ukraine sweatshirt, which I would have worn had you told me that uh, to be in theme tonight, but uh, also very relevant. I want to get to Ukraine and some politics at the end. Uh, just one more reminder, if you have questions, if you don't like my questions, write them on the cards, and I'm happy to take some advice from our esteemed audience. I want to start first. The book is Liberalism and Its Discontents. So I would like to start the conversation by defining our term, specifically liberalism as a, uh, for those of you that don't know, I'm a kind of uh, former never-Trump Republican type. So as a college Republican growing up, liberal was a dirty word for me. You know, it meant all these San Francisco tax-hiking tree huggers. Um, uh, and then as I've come to read your book uh, uh, over the past 24 hours, I was like, actually, I think liberalism is the opposite of a dirty word. I might, I'm, turns out I might be a liberal, but um, over in Europe, obviously an opposite definition. So when we talk about the discontents of liberalism, what, what are you talking about specifically? Sure. No, that's very important because I definitely don't mean it in that American sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean it in the sense of the doctrine that really got its start in the middle of the 17th century after the European wars of religion. Uh, at that point, um, Europeans had been killing each other for about 150 years over whether they were Protestant or uh, Catholic or what sect of Protestantism. And at that point, a number of thinkers said, well, maybe we shouldn't actually be killing ourselves over you know, these concepts of the good life and lower the horizons of politics uh, to life itself and, and to protect uh, you know, each citizen uh, in their uh, you know, personal security, uh, and agree to disagree. And, you know, that's a doctrine that is associated with certain institutions, the most important of which is a rule of law. Uh, these are rules that protect individuals from state power and limit, uh, you know, what uh, executive authorities can do through constitutional checks and balances. Uh, and it, you know, is really designed to enable uh, individuals to exercise choice, moral choice, autonomy. Uh, you know, that's what gives them dignity. Uh, liberalism says we're all equal human beings universally because we do have this capacity for moral choice, uh, and that's really what the government needs to protect. It's not associated with a particular economic policy. So on the right, you know, you have libertarianism, which is not what I consider liberalism. That's kind of funny, uniquely American anti-government, you know, attitude uh, uh, on, on, you know, economic and social issues. It's not, uh, yeah, the center-right version in Europe is like the German free democrats that are kind of pro-market but socially uh, more liberal. That's not my version either. So as far as I'm concerned, Sweden social democratic state is a liberal state because they protect individual rights, they respect uh, the rule of law, and you know that's really, I think, the essence of liberalism for me. So you're really breaking it down to a few attributes, and when we're talking about 
rule of law, a democratic republic. Um, but you also talked about some other attributes, uh, you know, kind of the scientific method, mm-hmm. you know, other elements of a, yeah. a liberal society. Like, what, what are some of those? Well, that's, that's particularly important now in the Internet age because liberalism was highly uh, associated with a certain cognitive mode called modern natural science. So modern natural science... Uh, assumes that there is an objective reality that's outside of our subjective consciousnesses. It can be apprehended through something called the scientific uh, method, and uh, that apprehension can be used to manipulate the world, and that's really what creates not not just science, but the technology that flows from science, and, you know, our modern economic world would not exist but for that technology, and so... Uh, you know, that cognitive mode is very much embedded in, you know, the liberal approach. Well, so I want, I want to get into the very the discontents on the right and left. But before we do that, one of the things, I think it was in the introduction to the book, that I felt was interesting and timely for what we're going through now here is, as you assessed it, the, the threats that we face to liberalism are actually more acute maybe than the threats to democracy. Right? We spent a lot of time talking about the threats to democracy. I'm sure we'll have more mm-hmm. on, here at the club. That's what we saw on January 6th. We were on a panel together about that. Um, but uh, your point, as I take it, is basically that uh, you know, democracy is not necessarily a protection from illiberalism, right? Uh, or dem- uh, demagogic, oh, right. democratic w- winners. So, so talk about w- how, how, as you kind of do a threat assessment right now, you know, compare the threats facing the liberal order versus democratic order. Yeah, so liberalism and democracy are usually allies, and they usually support one another, but they're distinct phenomena. So liberalism is really about law and legal constraints against the abuse of power. Democracy is the legitimation of power through reference to the people and, you know, uh, uh, governments ought to reflect the will of the largest number of their citizens. And although the two support each other in what we call liberal democracy, they can also be separated. And so uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary had announced you know, a number of years ago that he's trying to build not a liberal democracy but an illiberal democracy, meaning uh, he's democratically legitimated. He just won a big election. You know, he got a pretty good majority in parliament. So there's no question that he's democratically legitimate, but he's undermining the independent press in Hungary. He's undermining the court system. He's fostering a system of corrupt cronyism. Uh, and all of that you know, reflects the erosion of the rule of law. On the other hand, you can have a country like Singapore or maybe, you know, Imperial Germany in the 19th century that actually does have a strong rule of law. They respect property rights and and permit individual freedoms, but they're not democratic. They don't hold elections. Uh, I think that the reason I wrote about liberalism being under threat rather than democracy is that These days, almost nobody contests the principle of democracy, that the people's will uh, should be sovereign. Even the Chinese... Even Putin. Yeah, even Putin. I I mean, he pays homage, you know, uh, um, hypocritically to democracy by holding, you know, fake elections, but he still uh, holds them. And the Chinese Communist Party say they represent the true democracy because they're really representing the will of the Chinese people. But people don't like liberalism in the first instance, and they attack those legal constraints. Uh, You know, that's what every populist in the world, uh, uh, Modi in India, uh, Orban in in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, and our Donald Trump here in the United States, all get elected, and the first thing they do with that 
mandate is to try to undermine the rule of law. And that's why I think that it's really liberalism that's the first victim. Now, once you undermine the rule of law, then you can go after democracy, right. which is what you're now seeing you know, in Hungary itself. There's a lot of gerrymandering. In our country, uh, something similar is going to happen. You know, if federal judges are not going to stand in the way of election manipulation, then, you know, Republicans are going to mani- manipulate elections. So the two of them are related, but they're not identical. So I want to get into the critiques of our liberal right and left here. But, for, but first, just maybe try to put on the hat, um, which, you, which you do, I, I think, in the book, of... Uh, what are there? What are the legitimate grievances with liberalism that is sort of undermining this illiberal movement um, on 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 each side? And how, you know, how so would you assess before that? Before we get into sure, that, can I, can I tell you what's good about liberalism? Okay, no, no, I, I, I was going to end with what's good, but we can start with what's good let's if you want. With, okay, let's start with what's good because I think it's kind of a baseline from which you can then measure what's not so good. Okay, great. Right. Yeah. So I really think there's three issues. Uh, very simply, there's a pragmatic issue, there's a moral issue, and there's a, an economic issue. So the mm-hmm. pragmatic issue uh, is very simple. As I said, it's a way of dealing with diversity. In a diverse society, if you have a system that stresses tolerance for people that are, have different opinions from yourself, then it's a way of managing violent conflict. And so it starts out managing the conflict between different types of Christians. In the 19th and 20th centuries, it's an antidote to out-of-control nationalism. Uh, and in that respect, uh, it's very good uh, if you're coming out of uh, you know, two big world wars that have destroyed European civilization. Liberalism looks pretty good to you. Or if you're living under communism, uh, a communist dictatorship, again, you know, having the freedom to come and go and speak your mind, you know, looks pretty good. So that's, that's pragmatic. The second uh, is moral because liberalism is really about human choice. And I think that it's something that is pretty universal among human beings. They don't like to be ordered around. They like to be able to decide, you know, what they're going to do in life, uh, who they're going to marry, where they're going to live, these basic freedoms. Uh, but it's more than that because you know, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, what makes human beings uniquely human in that Judeo-Christian tradition is their capacity for moral choice. They can choose right or wrong, and that elevates them up, you know, above the rest of nature. And so by protecting the ability to choose, liberalism protects this fundamental human um, quality. And that's what makes liberals think that all human beings are actually equal because we may differ by skin color, intelligence, height, you know, all sorts of things, but we all are moral creatures, you know, underneath the final thing is economics because liberalism uh, protects property rights and freedom to transact. And so it's historically been associated with prosperity, with modern economic growth and the like. So I just want to say, I mean, yeah. it's important to hit the good points that's before you hit the critique. We've been I think that, a lot of critiques lately. Okay, that's fair. Um, I want to one-up you, actually, then. Yeah. Let's start about the positives of liberalism, because you sort of expressed towards the end uh, of the book that that one of your concerns about, you know, I think one of the critiques of, of liberalism is the sense that it doesn't foster a sense of community and that that's a lot of But as I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, is, is that really true? I don't know. The second, your, your, your second point, this moral component, this component that everyone has this, this individual dignity, uh, when put together into a broad, diverse society, 
I think there is this sort of communal sense, right? That maybe we don't agree on every specific thing or, you know, maybe our, our backgrounds aren't exactly the same. We grew up, but we have this one thing in common, which mm-hmm. is that we all want, you know, to flourish and that we all want everybody to succeed. I'm just imagining here in San Francisco, you're sitting in Dolores Park on a Sunday afternoon, like I was doing on Sunday. And, you know, there's all kinds of people, uh, you know, all races. And I think everybody in that park does feel like that there's some commun- some connective tissue. We've all chosen to be here. Uh, in this free country. And, and, and so I wonder sometimes why advocates of liberalism aren't that good at kind of making the case for yeah. the communal nature. Well, of it. yeah, I, I think the problem is that it's not one community. It's many communities, right? So liberal societies produce a very variegated and healthy and vigorous civil society. Right. But, you know, there are people doing all sorts of things. You know, they're environmentalists, they're feminists, they're trade unionists, they're stamp collectors. You know, there's all sorts of people. And, you know, that is an aspect of our human freedom to be able to join with other people voluntarily to pursue passions and interests that we share. But I think that for many people, that's not enough, you know, that they would like to actually see uh, a stronger sense of, of a broader community uh, where people, you know, share more than just these hobbies and, you know, uh, kind of interests, but, but you know, religious views or, you know, a sense of, of national purpose. And I actually do think you can see that in Ukraine right now. I mean, you've got this... This is where I was going to go now. Yeah, I mean, you've got this unbelievable degree of national unity right now. So something like a quarter million Ukrainians that had been living in other parts of Europe have actually gone back to Ukraine after the war started so that they could fight you know, on behalf of their country. Uh, And that's something that, you know, frankly, you don't get, uh, you know, that degree of civic spiritedness and engagement uh, is certainly not. And and even in our country, I think it's deteriorated. One thing I remember reading Dean Acheson's uh, autobiography many years ago when I was a graduate student. So World War I broke out when he was uh, an undergrad at Yale. And every member of his Yale class volunteered to join the U.S. Army at that point and then went off to Europe. Now, can you imagine the members of the Yale undergraduate class, you know, answering us? We don't need Zoomer slander here, okay? There's, you know, who knows what the threat would be from the Gen Z crowd at Yale. That's right. I'm going to challenge you on that point a little bit, though. I, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying about kind of the national fer- national fervor of, of what's happening in Ukraine. But I, I think that there has been a sort of reanimation of, of a kind of we- a pan-Western you know, sort of unity in val- yeah. behind Ukraine. And you see this across Europe. Uh, obviously, in some of the countries closer to Ukraine, there's a security element. But, I, you know, in France, I don't think that they're that concerned that, like, you know, Russia's mar- going to march across Europe. And, you, you, you know, I think saw the rejection of the of the nationalist wing there, I, I think, in, in large part. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Ukraine played a big part of that in the recent French election. Uh, here in America, I just kind of speaking to my peer group, I, you know, I see a lot of people who are like, uh, they want to volunteer, they want to contribute, they want to yeah. help me, they're not flying to Ukraine to pick up. But, but there is this sort of sense that we, don't, we might not share this nationalist or religious connection with Ukraine, but we, we do share something. It's this yeah. connection of a free people. And, and you know, no, that's absolutely that right. Be, yeah. no, in, in that respect, I think Ukraine has been really useful in reminding another generation yeah. 
that there are these kind of higher ideals that combine a country together. So I want to make something really clear. I'm not in favor of national identity, just any old kind of national identity, right? The Hungarian kind or the Russian kind is really toxic because it is, you know, exclusive, aggressive, uh, intolerant, right? So if you're going to have a national identity, I think... It really has to be a national identity built around uh, liberal values. Uh, And so we have to take pride in the fact that we're a free people. That's what Americans used to say about themselves. You know, we're we're a free people and we're proud of that freedom and we're willing to uh, fight for it. Uh, And it has to be something that is equally accessible by the actual diversity of the people that live in, in your society. Right, so you can't, like Viktor Orban has, say Hungarian national identity is based on Hungarian ethnicity. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what people on the right, the MAGA right, want to do in, in the United States, right. and that's not the right kind of national identity. But I do think that you know, uh, there has been a tendency of certain liberals you know, taking seriously the universality of human equality to dislike the idea of national borders and you know, the idea that that we're going to treat Americans differently from non-Americans. And, you know, I think a lot of that has kind of conceded the patriotism issue to the right where it shouldn't be, uh, because you're absolutely right. There's no reason liberal society can't, you know, feel this sense of national pride. I agree with that. I I just want to go on that that, that kind of critique of the left a little bit, because I, that is frustrating with me as sort of an immigrant, I guess, to the left coalition now, having left my old party. Um, you know, that came so natural at Republican events, this sort of patriotism. I, I understand the concern by people on the left about overdoing it. But I don't know. I was saying I traveled to Brazil last month and um, I was at a and, I, you know, as I was there on vacation, I don't know, but I went to a festival. While I was there and, and it was a very like this American. It was all these American bands and American brands yeah. and American uh, fashion and uh, and really kind of the types of people that probably didn't vote for Donald Trump right? as far as uh, they were there for this festival. And I'm thinking to myself, the left really should be. There is an American cultural identity that is healthy, that does embrace diversity, yeah. that is not revanchist. Right. And, and it does feel like sometimes the left is hesitant to sort of wave the American flag and say, you know, Doja Cat, and this is all of us too, right? Yeah. So like Apple is us, and uh, you know there are these elements that aren't, you know, oh, about right. throwing back to the fifties. If you ever want to be imbued with that spirit, you know, go to a naturalization ceremony. Right. Yeah. They're, they're very, very moving. In Europe, if you get naturalized, and in most European countries, it's actually very hard to get naturalized because they don't want you to be a citizen. But in the United States, you know, we typically have wanted uh, immigrants to become citizens. And, you know, the governor will show up. There'll be a military color guard. Uh, Everybody will say the Pledge of Allegiance. uh, And it's a very, very moving ceremony. And I think it kind of, you know, so this is what I mean about a liberal national identity. My former colleague and mentor Seymour Martin Lipset used to say that, that um, uh, you can't be un-German or un-Japanese because those identities are basically, you know, racially based. Right. Uh, but you can be accused of being un-American because American identity had become detached from ethnicity or religion or race uh, and became a political you know, a political thing that could be shared in terms of 
you know, common love for the Constitution, rule of law, but also a broader culture in which, um, you know, and a lot of it was popular culture. So you think, what's defined America in the 20th century? Well, you know, the great American songbook, rock and roll, right. jazz, hip-hop, you know, sure. uh, all of these incredibly vigorous cultural forms that, you know, have really defined what it means to be an American. And I think one of the really, uh, even sports. Sports, football, basketball, I was just going to yeah, say. right, so... Like in all these World War II movies, there's a Nazi infiltrator, and you want to find out whether he's a real American, so you ask him... Who the Cowboys quarterback is. (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, you know, that's deteriorating. And even in sports, you know, it's become um, politicized, and so, you know, there's some sports that are red and some that are blue, and, you know, uh, I think that those cultural icons unfortunately have seen some deterioration in, in recent years. I agree with that. So that, let's uh, take that just then for a moment into, you know, what the the right and left critiques of liberalism, and, and then we kind of pick apart what's wrong, what's wrong with them. Okay, well, so the right-wing critique is exactly, you know, what I just outlined, that it's not enough that you have a diverse civil society. They basically want... Um, you know, to go back to an America that they imagine. For some of them, it's a Christian America. For some, it's a white America. Monoculture. Yeah, monoculture. Uh, I think this is kind of a fantasy because right in the 19th century, everyone may have been Christian, but the, you know, the, the Protestants hated the Irish that were coming in and, you know, so on. And Nobody so. told the black people about yeah. the monoculture, I don't think. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, and now you've got these... Um, you know, uh, conservative intellectuals like Adrian Vermeule and yeah. Patrick Deneen and so forth that are toying with, you know, integralism where you basically have a state religion that's backed by the power of the state. That's a kind of extreme version, but I think that that hankering for that kind of, you know, deeply rooted national identity is is one of the things that they don't like about the current, you know, diverse America. Uh, and on the uh, left... You know, it's pretty understandable. Uh, Liberalism is based on the rule of law. It's highly procedural, uh, and therefore it's very slow. And so, you know, just to point out one uh, glaring example, uh, 13th, 14th, 15th amendments after the Civil War, in theory, give African Americans equal juridical rights to white people. But for the next 100 years, you still had Jim Crow, uh, and it's only until the Civil Rights Movement that the legal segregation gets wiped away. And that's pretty slow, you know, progress. But it is it is progress, but it's slow. And I think, you know, anyone interested in social justice wishes that it would be faster. But you got a system that protects property rights, and therefore you're going to protect the rights of oligarchs and rich people as well as, you know, ordinary ones. And that's, you know, that's a problem. And on the left, that's, that's a problem in, in their eyes. So how are you seeing that left critique manifest? Well, uh, so it's not just the slowness of the system. It's also a questioning of the liberal premise of kind of under the skin we're all human beings because there's a couple of you know versions of identity politics that have appeared uh, as a redefinition of what it meant, means to be a progressive. So one version of identity politics is actually just 
liberalism in, in a different form where you have a marginalized group, African-Americans, women, gays and lesbians, you know, so forth, that say, we've been excluded, we're mistreated, we want to be treated equally. Uh, and so that's a liberal understanding of identity. But there's an illiberal one that says, you know, those identities are so essential to who we are that uh, we, you know, deny the, the individualist premise, you know, that that's the thing that you ought to look at first, you know, when you're apportioning out resources or hiring people for jobs uh, and so forth. And, you know, that's the point at which it becomes, you know, potentially illiberal because you're judging people based on a group characteristic and you're giving rights to groups rather than to individuals. I thought this was maybe the most interesting part of the book is it's, it's put some language around a problem that I've been having, you know, because I'm, I'm gay and have a, a black daughter. And so there are elements of identity politics that resonate with me, right? Like the representation elements, right? That it's like hard for my mom to go find my daughter a black ballerina toy, right? Yeah. It's like, it'd be sure it'd be nice to have some black, you know, the representation would be nice. You know, I think I see her and like looking at, you know, black women who are seeing and think this is, you know, this is good. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's, a, it's something that I, I think does have value, you know, Pete's candidacy. I wrote a lot about Pete's candidacy, and I, I felt like people undermined how important that was. It was kind of like crazy to me, thinking that like, I, it didn't even occur to me that I could get married when I was in college, and now like a married gay man is running for president. Like, that has to have an impact on college. So I, I thought all of those elements of identity politics are good. Well, at the same time, there's this obvious pernicious element to identity, mm -hmm. to identitarian politics, that I think is causing some of the right-wing backlash. And, and, and how do you kind of navigate that, that yeah. line? Well, so this is kind of the larger theme. So you asked me what's wrong with liberalism, so we're finally getting to that. Okay. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's not liberalism as a theory uh, itself, but interpretations of liberalism that have been carried to extremes. And, you know, one of them on the right has been the evolution of liberalism into what's called neoliberalism. You know, the market is good, so 10 times as much market is going to be 10 times better. Uh, and the state is an obstacle to, you know, uh, markets working efficiently, so let's get rid of the state. I mean, that's uh, one of the things that's led to the kind of inequality in, in the United States. But on the left, uh, you have a similar... Uh, evolution where you say, well, autonomy is a good thing. Basically, all of us want to be free agents and want to be respected for that. But, you know, under the certain liberal thinkers want to carry that to say autonomy is, uh, you know, is the be all and good all, uh, end all of human life. And it doesn't matter what you choose as long as you've chosen it. Uh, so it's not just your ability to follow the rules as established by a religion or culture, but you get to make up the rules, you know, yourself. And that, uh, in the you know, in, in a way undermines every existing moral tradition that people have. And, you know, people actually don't want to be completely autonomous free agents that can, like Nietzsche, Zarathustra, just make up, you know, a new moral order. They actually want to live their lives according to, you know, orders that have been uh, ex existent before them, that their ancestors practiced, uh, and so forth. And, you know, there's a version of liberalism that says, no, no, you have to start from zero, you know, uh, uh, you get to you get to decide everything. Uh, so I think that's, you know. Yeah, you get into this is a, I want to get this right. So I, I made a note of this. You get into this sort of tension in the book, right, that, that you're talking about now, this liberal value of individual rights, but then a critique of 
I think what you referred to as Rousseauian individualism, right? This sort of, which is what you're getting at now, right? The, you know, where it goes, it goes too far, and you know, this idea that American culture has developed now has kind of tried has replaced, you know, some of those kind of uniting kind of values with individualist pursuits, you know, I don't know, self-care, mm-hmm. um, you know, yoga, uh, what is it, the lived experience, kind of these cliches of, of modern life. But I, I, I guess I was just, uh, what struck me is, is okay, well, where, when does that become problematic, right? I don't, you know, I, at an individual level, if somebody that wants to find, you know, community through these sort of self-care and pampering like that's not is there anything that's like fundamentally wrong with that in a free society i don't think uh there's you know it is just an aspect in a way of of you know liberal choice where it does become uh, dangerous i think is when it becomes a matter of public policy and a kind of formal way of distinguishing groups uh and so you know if you think of a liberal society not as a collection of free individuals, but a collection of, you know, sort of closed groups that are competing with one another, that becomes a very, you know, problematic sort of society. Uh, and we have a lot of examples of that, you know, around the world. Uh, political scientists call it consociationalism. I, like, as we speak, Lebanon is melting down because it's a very diverse society, but you know, in Lebanon, you don't act as an individual, you act as a member of a particular, you know, sect, and all the political positions are given out based on which sect, you know, the Speaker of the Parliament, the President, you know, they're all given to different people. That's a very, very extreme example, but I think that to the extent that you can maintain a liberal order that is based on individuals rather than on formally recognized group rights, that's, you know, a better way to proceed. Um, again, if you have questions uh, in the audience, uh, you can write them on note cards for on YouTube. You can put them in the comment section. I want to do a little bit more on the philosophy here when you get into politics at the end. So if you have questions about Rawls, now's a good time to get those to get those up here. I want to go. I want to backtrack a little bit to your um, neoliberal critique, um, which kind of caught me off guard, I guess, in the book. Just how 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 I think that you argued how central it was to the backlash against to the discontents, uh, the liberal order. Um, you said at one point um, there's been a, there was an intellectual capture of economists by big business, um, and you know the income inequality and various elements of neoliberalism yeah. has, has brought about this backlash. So, you know, because you know, I think that a lot of people, I, at least I sort of uh, put classical liberalism and, you know, the sort of free market neoliberalism viewpoint is hand in hand. And, and I guess you were sort of arguing that, it, that they've been in conflict, I guess, or actually, yeah. you know, almost undermining it rather than conflict. Well, I think if you only have a liberal society, it's probably not sustainable if you don't connect it to democracy in some way. And by democracy, I actually mean you have to equalize outcomes to some extent uh, because if the inequalities become too extreme, the whole system loses legitimacy. And I think, you know, liberal societies have saved themselves by allying to democracy and doing uh, a certain amount of redistribution. But, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s, that fell out of fashion. Uh, There are a lot of attempts to cut back the state, to cut back regulation. And if you want to trace, I mean, just a clear, you know, line, uh, you look at the deregulation of the financial sector. I mean, of all the parts of the modern, you know, late 
capitalist society, uh, the one part that absolutely has to be regulated is, is the financial sector. But, you know, under the influence of neoliberal ideas, those regulations were taken off uh, beginning in the late 80s and then culminating in um, the late 90s. And that led directly to the financial crisis in 2008. Banks were allowed to take these really you know, enormous risks. And millions of Americans lost their homes uh, in the subprime mortgage crisis. And if you look at the people that created this system, you know, they did fine. You know, a year or two of turmoil, and they're back to being on top of the world, masters of the universe, uh, and so forth. And so I think you can see, you know, the, the, the anger at the way that those elites had managed the system, and it was a justified anger, I think. Okay, so this is your critique of the uh, neoliberal order. Uh, we have an audience question here. I'm going to ask you to put your hat on the other side, which is to defend liberalism in the heart of an economic question. Uh, this, for, this person argues liberalism leads to unfettered capitalism and the concentration of wealth in the 0.1%. And I think this is the left-wing critique of, mm-hmm. of, of uh, economic liberalism and that that is inevitable. Like, What is the argument against that? Well, like I said, yeah, I think that Liberalism, if that's all you had, if we had liberalism with no elections and no voting, uh, you'd end up, uh, you know, that, that critique would be right. But the successful instances of liberalism were ones where it was paired with democracy. Uh, and, you know, beginning in, well, actually beginning in Bismarck's Germany, but certainly at the beginning of the 20th century, most democracies actually began uh, putting in social protections of various sorts, uh, welfare states that uh, guarded people against some of the extremes of market capitalism. And I think that liberalism survived. You know, uh, Friedrich Hayek wrote this book called The Road to Serfdom, where he he wanted to make a slippery slope argument that the moment you start regulating this free market, it was inevitable that you're basically going to end up like the Soviet Union, that it would keep getting you know, uh, more and more state, less and less human freedom. I, in general, don't believe slippery slope arguments, but that one in particular proved to be wrong. I actually think that social democracy in Europe was what saved liberalism because it did equalize outcomes and it, you know, it kind of raised all boats even as the society, the, the, you know, the wealthy were getting um, uh, richer. So, yeah, that's, that's a true critique, but, you know, we do have democracy as well. Um, I've got two audience questions here that, that kind of pair together about the challenges of liberalism in a modern age. Uh, the first says Americans no longer share the same sources of facts and arguably reality. Can liberal democracy survive the digital media? The other question uh, to the same point is, as the, con- as the concepts of liberalism continue to adapt in the modern age with social media, how do you think the idea of true liberal politics will take root in the next generation? So uh, it's two challenges. How, how can okay. you know, these values in the next generation, and is it hopeless, uh, given, <laughs> given the fake news? And Yeah, I wouldn't say it's hopeless, but I don't actually have an answer to that question. I, I, I think it's a really serious uh, challenge. So there, there are several levels to this. Um, You know, one of the chapters in my book talks about the decline of this, what I said was a cognitive mode uh, closely associated with liberalism, which is modern science. And in my view, that critique actually begins on the left. Uh, You know, I actually studied with these people when I was young and foolish, 
uh, I, I spent, you know, uh, a better part of a year in Paris studying with Jacques Derrida and these post-structuralists. But there's a there's a line that goes from structuralism to post-structuralism to post-modernism to uh, different versions of critical theory. A lot of which is a critique of you know, science. Uh, it's a belief in a certain kind of subjectivism, and it kind of culminates in the work of Michel Foucault, who, you know, very brilliantly uh, makes a critique of science in which he says there are these, you know, categories that's, that are used, that use scientific language about incarceration, homosexuality, uh, mental illness, that actually are not scientific. They're simply using that language uh, to manipulate you. These are elites that are using the language to manipulate you, and what he called biopower permeates, you know, the whole of society. And I think a lot of the sensitivity to language that is at the core of political correctness really comes from Foucault, because he said that it's really language that is used by these elites to, to, to do this. And so, in my view, he was really one of the original conspiracy theorists, you know, that, that he actually said that science in many respects was a conspiracy that was uh, manipulating uh, ordinary people. And now that has drifted over to the right, uh, um, yeah. where you know, the whole critique during COVID was of the public health establishment. And, you know, you hear these Foucaultian strains that these people are not, they're, they're, they claim to be scientists, but they're really elites that are using science uh, to manipulate you because all they care about is, is power. Uh, so you take that view of science and you combine it with the internet and you've got a big meltdown, right? Because the internet at least had been uh, had these filters uh, where there were certain standards for verification, you know, legacy media in the science community, you know, uh, in the legal community, in criminal law. You couldn't just say anything you wanted, but, you know, with the Internet, anyone can say anything they want. So you go on the Internet and say, are vaccines safe? And you'll get 10,000 hits saying, no, 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 that's completely wrong. That's, you know, they're pulling the wool over your eyes. And how you get out of it is, uh, it's a question. We actually have a, a new center in my institute, a cyber policy center. And so people have been trying to wrestle with this for the last several years. And I don't think that there's a good, you know, a good answer to this. Me neither, but I'm not here to give my dark, uh, my dark thoughts. Um, I want to I move to the right and the concerns about the right. But just one more thing on the left, since you, you mentioned that and I think the kind of Foucaultian uh, mindset sort of led us here on the critical to where we ended up on critical theory. We have this question, um, which is, what is the most charitable, charitable construction that can be given to claims such as math is inherently racist? And I think that you see this criticism from the critical left, right, which is all, all, all manner of, you know, liberal values, all yeah. manner of things that you've been talking about, not just math, but the you know, scientific method that they're, that they're a Western, they have this inherent racist element yeah. of them uh, you know what is the response to that critique and, and what is the most like, how, how, you know, that, that takes their critique seriously well in this book uh, I actually tried to be fair to critical theory and so I actually go over several especially the early writers like Charles Mills or Carol Pateman mm -hmm. so forth were actually steeped in you know western political theory and they understood it well and you know, they make serious charges against liberalism, which I don't think are right, but, you know, they're, they're, they're serious people. The problem is that, you know, you get these 
Robin D'Angelo's and Ibrahim Kendi's that, you know, have a kind of cartoonish version of this, you know, where you say that, in fact, we had a presentation at a seminar at Stanford where some woman was saying, you know, she was critiquing uh, racist Western epistemology. I mean, Descartes is somehow an instrument of white power, you know, it's just completely, you know, completely nonsensical sort of thing. But um, so there's no charitable uh, account of some of these, you know, latecomers that really turn it into a caricature of itself. But there is something to the, you know, the earlier critical theorists that said there are many ways in which, you know, existing uh, institutions and structures you know, appear to be liberal and open and tolerant, but they really do, you know, hide uh, a more covert form of, you know, of power that keeps certain people in positions of power. And, you know, I think you can probably identify uh, a number of them in criminal justice and, you know, a lot of uh, domains of life. And so that part of it, I think, is okay. Where it goes wrong is where it attacks the principles of liberalism itself. It attacks, you know, freedom of speech, due process, uh, the premise that, you know, there's a basic moral equality to people. Those are the points in which, you know, I think it veers off into something that I certainly am not going to defend. For sure. So let's now kind of level set, because uh, I want to get into the right illiberalism, which I, uh, seems more acute to me. But but for you, when you look at those threats, you know, to uh, and if we say if we're defining the threat of the liberal left being kind of the critical theory, the, the right being this sort of Trumpist, you know, and in, in it's in a raw sense and, you know, maybe in a more scholarly sense, the Vermeule integralist theory. I, like what what do you if we're doing a threat assessment, yeah. you know, of of the next whatever, quarter century. How, how do you, you know, look at those two different strains of liberalism? Well, to me, there's absolutely no question that the threat, the, the clear and present danger is coming from the right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it'll come in the 2024 presidential election. I was just listening to actually to Bill Crystal's latest uh, podcast with um, Judge... Uh, Ludwig, Ludwig, it's yeah. really good. It's really scary. Yeah, uh, it's really it's, scary because Ludwig was not like a Trump derangement, never Trumper like me. I mean, yeah. you know, he was very, uh, you know, very conservative. Of, yeah, very conservative. And, yeah, uh, you know, and I think he said a number of things that were absolutely correct. That, you know, and, and February, uh, January sixth was not a spontaneous uh, uh, rally that just got out of hand. Uh, that's the way I thought about it initially when I was watching it on TV. But now we've learned through the January 6th commission that it was planned very carefully that, you know, uh, it, that Trump was behind all of it and that uh, basically a lot of Republicans want to be able to repeat it, you know, making use of this Electoral Count Act of 1887, this very defective law, uh, in such a way that they can substitute their will for the will of the people in a, in a future election. And that is just the most overt threat to democracy that, you know, certainly I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, and so that, you know, is, is by far uh, uh, um, a clear and present danger. The, the one on the left is, is complicated because it's a cultural threat. It exists primarily in elite, unif you know, institutions in the arts and Hollywood and universities. Um, and it's, you know, slower acting. Uh, and actually, the big controversy among my more with my more progressive friends is a lot of them say, you know, it's not that it's not that serious. 
Uh, it is just a few incidents that get blown up by the conservative media, and everybody thinks that there's no freedom. Of, in fact, I've got conservative friends that assert, oh, there's no freedom of speech whatsoever. It's <laughs> a place like Stan. It's ridiculous, you know. You can say whatever we're you want. We live in the golden era of yeah. speech. This <laughs> is my biggest pet peeve about the complaint about yeah. the left-wing liberalism. Like, cranks, you know, people like Diamond and Silk, who, you know, would be writing letters to the editor, to their local paper, and having them be rejected 25 years ago, <laughs> now have, like, million followers on yeah. social media. You know, I mean, this is... There are certain threats within these elite institutions, yeah. to, you know, employee speech, but... But political speech is, is thriving. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the threats are really narrowly related to certain civil rights issues having to do with race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth. But, you know, in this country, you can say anything you damn want about the president of the United States or anyone else, you know, in power. I had to listen to, like, three conservative podcasts about how Dave Chappelle was being canceled while I was, like, driving by a Dave Chappelle billboard about how he's going to fill the stadium in New Orleans. <laughs> and I was like, are we sure he's canceled? He seems like he's doing pretty good to me. Yeah. Um, but, but, but just yeah. just to be fair, sure. uh, you know, I, I see this in a lot of my students, that they don't have liberal attitudes towards fair. a lot of things, and, you know, they're going to inherit the country at some point, so... You know, it's um, worth worrying about. Fair was worrying about. I, I, I want to go to the more cute thread because we're out of time. But obviously, with with there are a couple of things happening in the news that are very relevant to your book, and I just want to uh, speak about it. Uh, first, obviously, this replacement theory, great replacement theory, which is about as illiberal as you can get, um, that that led to the uh, shooting in Buffalo. Uh, but then we have these kind of Republican primaries going on right now where extremely illiberal Republican, can the J.D. Vance candidacy in yeah. Ohio, and that all ties together. A lot of them sort of use soft replacement theory language. So just putting that, like, Trump is a unique individual threat, but, but putting him aside for a second, what about these other kind of elements on the right? Yeah, well, it's terrible. I mean... You know, not only was January 6th planned, but in a way the worst thing is then the Republican reaction, uh, which should have been one of shock and horror and the marginalization of the people that were behind the conspiracy. But instead, they've tried to normalize it. They've tried to defend it, you know, essentially sweep it under the rug. Uh, and as a result, you know, you got 30, more than 30 percent of the country that thinks that Biden is not the legitimate uh, president. And it's really hard to see how you can have a constitutional democracy when that many people believe something that's just a total lie. Yeah. And I mean, Vance, who, who's, who's going to be in the Senate, uh, was likely a Senate candidate, was feted by all the elites that are, that are such a threat to speech. Um, I, literally, I don't know if you saw the Vanity Fair article. He literally went so far as to say that you know Trump should conduct extra legal firings of uh, yeah, government officials, that. and if the Supreme Court tries to stop them, say send your army. Yeah. I mean that's very scary rhetoric it coming is. from a competent. Per like, this is someone who I, I think has would would have a more competent ability to yeah. to enact anti-rule of law efforts and and that isn't really related to Trump right no that's right i mean uh, the whole party is now you know fallen in line behind that kind of rhetoric and the damage that can be done in a second republican presidential term in, after 2024 is just enormous uh 
Um, how do you tie? So I have this, this is a, one of the questions from the audience or from online. Perceived victimization as proffered by a demagogue also foments friction among groups. And so I think in some ways these things are acting together, right? There's this sense on the right. There's this white, this is victimization of white culture, right? We're being targeted, you know, affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, it's that, that sense of victimization is being hypercharged by a demagogue. You know, leading to some of the things, maybe not directly leading to some of the things like Buffalo, but certainly d- leading to the radicalization mm-hmm. of young men. Uh, you know, like what? Uh, you know, how do, how do you kind of break up that sort of symbiotic sort of relationship, this feeling of victimization? Well, I wish I had a simple answer to that. <laughs> and we have two minutes left for you yeah. to uh, solve that I mean, problem. I guess my basic answer in general is that you win elections. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, that the people that believe that stuff are not a majority of the country. Uh, And, uh, you know, if you play your political cards right, you can marginalize them uh, politically. It's just that right now, I just don't think the Democrats are doing a really good job in, you know, organizing themselves to really focus on what's important and to persuade. You know, one of the scariest things is, as a political scientist, I believe, and I, you know, Tim, I I know you believe that, you know, this threat that's posed by, uh, you know, this uh, January 6th stuff is like the biggest danger that we're facing in in the near future. But most Americans could care less, you know. Uh, it, it's kind of an elite concern, and somehow nobody has yeah. made it clear to them that they could lose their entire democracy if this stuff isn't can, stopped. Can we talk about the elite right then? And this is a little bit more of our world, right? We live in this world, and um, uh, you know, more from a kind of a public intellectual standpoint, me from like the campaign hack perspective. But like, what is your sense when you talk to folks? You know, on the, that that share your classically liberal values have, tr- have been traditionally in line with the Republican Party, who just don't share that threat assessment. Who kind of look at what is happening with the Republican Party and decide that, whatever, cancel culture is yeah. a bigger threat. Like, like how 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 do you diagnose that? Like, what, you know, is there do they have a legitimate reason for their lack of no, concern? No. Uh, <laughs> so a long time ago, I decided that. You know, this premise that people are fundamentally rational was a very naive (laughs) point of view and that actually social psychologists, you know, had better insight into why people believe what they do, you know, that it has to do with social pressure and social acceptability and this enormous um, uh, uh, ability of human beings to pursue what is called motivated reasoning, where you use your cognitive ability not to actually try to perceive the objective world, but to make the objective world fit your wishes in terms of what it should be like. Uh, and that's a lot of what's been going on. But I must say, I mean, one of the strange experiences, this started really with the Iraq War, uh, where a lot of my close friends were big boosters of it and you know, thought it was really great thing and I didn't and I just didn't understand given that we all had very similar backgrounds and knowledge why is why is it that certain people change their minds and other people don't and I still don't know what the reason is um you know um I want to uh uh, do one other political um timely thing obviously we have potentially the Roe v. Wade um uh uh, overturn uh, coming in the in the next few weeks. Uh, you write a, you wrote a little bit about this about you know kind of the equal the how abortion is a challenging question within this construct of of liberalism the equal right to autonomy 
the mother and and the child how, how do you what is your kind of sense for you know how you know people that want to espouse classical liberal values but maybe have differing specific views about you know the origin of life like how, how are we how do we how can we as a group here to kind of like kind of navigate those differences in a liberal way and like what's your sense for what's coming uh yeah, I'm not terribly optimistic about <laughs> how this is all going to play out uh, because it does seem to me that, um, you know, because of the way this issue has been politicized and has politicized the, the judicial system, uh, I don't think that you're going to get satisfactory answers coming out of that. I mean, there was a time when you might have hoped that the judiciary had, you know, maintained enough independence that people would actually listen to reasoned arguments. I think it's been long since, you know. Uh, uh, so again, I think this... There was a classically liberal argument, right, on the right mm -hmm. for a while that overturning Roe v. Wade would lead to this sort of, you know, how our, a democratic, a liberal democracy is supposed to work, right, where there is, you know, yeah. uh, federalism and, co and, you know, you find common ground and, you know, certain limits. But it feels, it feels hard to imagine that's going to happen. Hard to imagine, and it's also the case that there's a strong common law tradition that's, you know, supporting stare decisis. And if people think that something is a right for two generations, and even if the original, there are questions about the original decision, you can't just take it away from them. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're in for a you know a tough period where this is going to be fought out politically. Yeah, we have five minutes left. I'm going to get to one or two more audience questions. My last thing about this, just to really challenge you, the, the book does. Talk about so to this person, talk about federalism and like sort of the value of this and, yeah. and maybe protecting kind of the liberal order by you know sort of pushing more decisions down. My problem, my concern about that is that there it doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence in in a and maybe this is related to the communications questions, right? That that our small communities are um, are at all there's a buffer at all from these sort of illiberal trends, right? And the kind of illiberal national trends um, that, that we see in Congress are, are being, you know, paralleled or even worse in certain cases in various state legislatures and, and you know, community organizations. So, uh, you know, how is, is your sense that maybe that's okay, right, that there's federalism and, and that there'll just be different outcomes in different places? Or, you know, what, yeah. what makes you think that, that sort of pushing decisions closer would, would help? Well, it depends on the kind of issue that federalism is meant to uh, address. Uh, so there are a lot of issues that are purely local, like building infrastructure or, sure. you know, running police departments or so forth. And uh, I think that it's too bad that a lot of them have gotten nationalized in, you know, the way that people think about them. Part of that has to do with the disappearance of local news because that used to be a buffer where, you know, people could talk about things within their community without that being tainted. But not everything is related to politics that comes out of Washington. You know, there still are a substantial number of decisions that are taken locally where local people have better understanding. The place where you get into trouble, again, is where you get into these basic rights issues, you know, uh, having to do, and, and that was classically the reason that the federal government would overrule states' rights, you know, right. southern states wanted slavery, and then after the end of slavery, they wanted Jim Crow, and that was a, a uniformity that the basic structure of our rights dictated, you know, be centralized and be made uniform. Uh, on the other hand, health care policy, 
you know, does everybody in the country have to get an identical level of care? Can it be tailored to rural communities or urban areas? You know, is that sort of thing where you, is that an area where you don't necessarily need to have a federalism, I mean, a, a, a single policy dictated from Washington? And I suspect, you know, probably not. Um, that, this is kind of just now taking the whole conversation to a broader context. Um, you know, we've been talking about the concerns about liberalism, but it is, uh, I, I thought this audience question was interesting that, that maybe there's an inherent instability in the nature of liberalism that just needs to be embraced, right? It's given the human nature of pursuing social hierarchy for power. Uh, you know, is, is, is there always going to ha- be, you know, these sorts of ebbs and flows, um, you know, in any, in any sort of liberal, liberal country? Uh, well, I wouldn't, cons- I don't construct a whole fear around it, but there's something to that, you know, that in many ways, liberalism is desirable when compared to its alternatives. And I think it's still the case that none of these critics on, on the left or the right has come up with a convincing substitute for liberalism. Uh, but, you know, people do get complacent, and we've been living in a liberal world order since 1945, you know, a lot of it constructed by the United States, where people could assume a, a basic level of peace and prosperity. Um, and, you know, they wanted the liberal order after 1945 because they saw what war could do. In Eastern Europe, they saw what communism meant, uh, and they wanted to join the European Union because they didn't like that kind of dictatorship. Uh, but, you know, now in Poland, for example, you've had a whole generation that's grown up, no experience, no living experience of communism. And so right. they can believe that it's the European Union and not, you know, a communist guy like or a dictator like Putin. That's the real danger. They don't believe that in Poland now. But, uh, you know, you could have this illusion of safety. And so I do think that there may be this cycle, unfortunately, that we do have to go through where uh, you experience all the alternatives to liberalism and then you begin to realize that that peace and prosperity and stability was actually pretty good and you need to fight uh, and you need to be vigilant in order to keep, uh, keep it. Yeah, well, we'll close with this. You did. I kind of bristled at this line and quote. You you paraphrased Churchill with, um, you know, liberalism is uh, the worst form except all of the others, and I felt, I felt like after after writing this compelling defense of liberalism against its discontents, there was that was like a little bit of self hating uh, about <laughs> all of this, and that and that you know maybe uh, hopefully coming out of this, um, you know, especially with what's happening in Ukraine, you know, we can kind of. Sort of refoster some enthusiasm and excitement for these yeah. for these principles, and and that that maybe we could be in a moment for that, right? Where that with everything's happening in the world, and I think I think even growing frustration on the left with some of the liberalism. I'm less hopeful on the right; they seem to be embracing it. But that, like there could be this moment of sort of, re- of reinvigorating moment of classical liberalism. So do you have a, a closing note I, of hope for yes, us on okay, that? Okay, I have a closing optimistic okay. note on which to conclude. Uh, if you look historically. Uh, the most successful societies in history, you know, let's say beginning with Periclean Athens, but, you know, going through the golden age of, you know, the Netherlands in the, in the 17th century or England inventing the Industrial Revolution uh, or, 
you know, fin de siècle Vienna that produces, you know, Mahler and Hoffmannsthal and, and Sigmund Freud and uh, uh, so forth. Liberal societies are really the founts of creativity and historical pro- progress, right? Uh, precisely because they are diverse and uh, revel in that diversity and allow people to do what they want. And so, and I think, you know, uh, when I think about the United States, uh, its culture, it comes out of that diversity. Like, I just think, you know, I, I, I listen to a lot of music. If you listen to American music in the 19th century, it's, really, it's pretty horrible, you know. <laughs> it's really boring. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the Calvinists didn't even like people singing. Uh, and then, you know, you get to the 20th century, and you think about all the musical forms, you know, a great American songbook. Yeah. It's all written by Jews, you know, that were first-generation <laughs> immigrants, yeah. Irving Berlin and Dorothy Fields and, you know, people like that. Uh, and then they Ooh. meld that with African-American music, with the blues. It becomes rock and roll. Now it, you know, evolves into hip hop. I mean, what it is to be, you know, to have an American culture really does come exactly out of that diversity. And we should be proud of that, right? That yeah. that's, a, that's a great achievement. It's conquered the world. You go to these really obscure parts of the world, like I do pretty regularly. And, you know, what do you hear? You hear American music. So... Can we put Coachella culture on a bumper sticker? <laughs> this is it, right? We all, this is a, a unifying factor. Um, uh, it was really an honor to do this. Thank you so much, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for uh, having me. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.